This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, God, we thank you for your, um, your grace. We thank you for the things that you teach us, and we pray that that would happen now as we lend our ears um, to the reading of your word and as we... Um, we open our hearts to hear, um, to truly hear it, um, and to to believe it, and we open our minds to understand it and to comprehend what you're saying. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. First John two verses fifteen through seventeen says this: Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus, in um, what is called his high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John, we can find this, Jesus prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's how Jesus prayed. He was getting ready to go to the cross. He was leaving this world um, that he had come to, and, and he, was, he was God made manifest, which means he was, was seen and heard and touched. Like You could actually shake hands with Jesus or fist bump, I guess, if he was living in 2020. He was the one to pay for the sins of the world, and he had to do that by becoming physical to the want to the place that he created and to accomplish the single most important event in history is why he came, far greater than anything that this world has ever seen or would ever see again or ever will see again, and he did that. And before he did that, he prayed, don't take them out of this world, but keep them from the evil one. You see, the evil one is the one who says that what Jesus did wasn't good enough. It wasn't that impressive. It wouldn't do anything. And he says that in, in, in return, he says, the world is actually what matters. The things around you, the things that you can see, right? And that's what really matters. It matters more than what Jesus did. And so as long as we're in the world, that's what we're tempted to believe. We're tempted to believe the enemy of God, that the world actually is what matters the most. And he would be right had Jesus stayed in the grave. But the reason why we sing of the resurrection of Christ and why we put our faith in that, as Paul says, it is everything to us. He did not stay in the grave, and therefore the resurrection of Christ changed everything. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to our study today of 1 John, Last week, I stepped away just for one week, and we looked at 2 Corinthians um, 
chapter four, some verses in that in that uh, in that passage, and they actually really kind of connect with what we're going to do today. There's some segues here that we can make between what we studied last week and what we're studying, what we look at today when we're back in our first John study. This text is important for us to focus on because it reminds us of a really, really vitally important fact, and that is this. It's very simply this. We cannot love both the world and the Father simultaneously. Love for the world will crowd out love for the Father, and love for the Father crowds out love for the world. You can't have both. You can't truly have both. So the main point then of today's text is, do not love the world, love the Father. That's really simple. But that's a lot easier to say than it is to live. It's a lot easier to read than it is to actually put into practice. And the reason why, I think, is because we can see the world. We can't see the Father. And and if we're given those two options, what we can see or what we can't see, we have a tendency to gravitate toward things that we can see, things that we can touch. You know, like I said, if you were with us last Sunday or if you watched the online stream, that's exactly what we talked about from 2 Corinthians 4. The things that are seen are temporary. They fade away. They're momentary. And when we focus on them, we can easily lose heart. When we focus too much attention on things that are seen, it's so easy to lose heart. And so Paul in that passage and Paul in that letter urges us to focus our lives on things that are eternal, which are things that are unseen. Well, John, who was also an an apostle, in fact, he was probably Jesus' greatest, his best friend, his best earthly friend when Jesus was here on earth, John recognizes the same danger of getting these priorities mixed up. And so he instructs us to not love the world. And then he gives us reasons why. And the reasons why why we shouldn't love the world is this. The world is opposed to the Father, and the world is passing away. And so we're going to look at those things. We're going to look at those. We're going to pull those things right out of this text. And let's first just consider the instruction, which comes in verse 15. And it comes in the form of a command or a directive. This is really the only command that John gives as he writes his letter to the church. And it's, it's really important to see this because most of what he's talking about is, is, is encouragement and reminders of how to stay strong, even in the face of false teaching and reminders of how much God loves us and reminders of, of, of how we live in that love. But then he says, he gives, he says, do not. So it's a command, right? It's a directive. And the, the, the command is very simply, verse 15, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this is not a suggestion. This is not a good idea. I mean, this is not just a good idea. It's not just something to ponder, right? It is a command. Do not love the world. So through the Apostle John, God is is speaking. The God of the universe who created you is speaking that's what Scripture is. That's, that's what we believe Scripture is. In fact, the reason we believe that is because the Bible itself in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 says that it is God-breathed and it is useful for instruction and training and correction so that you may be complete and fully equipped for every good work. That's what the Scripture says about itself. It is God-breathed. And so God, through John, with his authority as ruler and creator, has the right to give us a command. We studied 10 of those not long ago as we studied the 10 commandments from the Exodus. And today in John, 1 John chapter 2, he says another command, do not love the world. And God's commands, as we as we also said when we studied the 10 commandments, 
don't just come empty. They don't just come by themselves in a vacuum. They come with grace. So he never gives a command apart from grace. What I mean by that is whatever he commands, he also grants you the ability to obey it. So we believe this. This is what we believe as a central aspect of our doctrine, okay? Uh, you know, what I mean by that is what we believe about God is our doctrine, that his word creates for us a culture, which is how we live, right? Culture is, is how we live, what we, you know, you know, how we live out what we believe. And he always creates what he wants to see happen in our lives. He creates that for us. So the big question that we are always left to ask ourselves is this, how does what I believe line up with how I live? Because your culture, how you truly live and behave is always connected with what you truly believe. Those two things are inextricably connected. And so that's the question that we're left with. I say I believe this about God. Does it line up with how I live? And that's really what John is talking about today. He mentions this word, the world, six times in these three verses. So I think we should look at the world and what, what, what he means by that. What is the world, right? I mean, as it's used in Scripture, what, what can we say about the world and what it means? Because by itself, when you're just talking about the world, you don't think of it as being... Like, like in normal life, regular everyday life, you don't think of the world, the world as being just in, inherently evil, right? It's just, it's just the world. But when you think of it in a, in a religious sense, okay, in a Christian sense, in a, in, a, in a Bible sense, whenever we hear the word the world, there's a negative connotation to that. Why is that the case? Well, here's how the Bible talks about the world, okay? The world, as it's used in Scripture, can be defined like this. The entire system of rebellion against God and God's rule, okay? So that's, what, that's the way the Bible looks at the world. Commentators, uh, one commentator, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, I, I often read his commentary, one, because it's easy to understand, uh, but he says it this way, worldliness does not lie in the things that we do or the places we frequent, but it lies in the human heart. That's where worldliness is, ultimately and in the set of human affections and human attitudes. So what we, what we feel and what we believe and what we, what we do, right? How, what our attitude is. This is so important to understand. If you don't get this, then you're not going to understand this command that John says, don't love the world. And you won't understand what the Bible means when the Bible is talking about the world. John is not saying, understand this, John's not saying, and the Bible isn't saying, that the world God made was bad, is bad. That's not, I mean, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the way that we relate to what God made can be bad. So to John, worldliness is thinking that the world is all that ultimately matters. World and the flesh. And it is. They're, I'll bet it does. Yeah. But what Ben says, if you guys didn't hear that, is, is it's very similar to the way Paul talks about the flesh. Like, Paul will often say, it's my, you know, when I, when I desire to do something that is against, that against God's, God's will, it's, it's a desire of the flesh. 
and here John's using basically the world in the same way, and it, and it might have something to do with the people they're writing to and how they might understand that. And that's a good point. But it is if you understand if so if you if, if you better understand the idea of the flesh, then you understand that. I also think that there is an internal component to the flesh as well, and. Or, or I guess I should say it this way, that when he talks about the flesh, he's mostly talking about me internally. And the world can have an external component to it as well, that there's some systems of belief that are outside of me that can lure me in and cause me to desire those things as well. And so it might actually be a bigger concept for John. But the point that he's making is, you know, the stuff in the world isn't necessarily all bad because the Bible also says don't, don't call anything that God made evil, but it's how we treat that stuff, right? We simply cannot love the world, meaning we can't view the world as ultimate and also love the Father, view Him as ultimate at the same time. We just can't. One ultimately comes first in our heart. And John says that needs to be the Father if you're a Christian, if you're a believer. So my guess is uh, that we know that. That's my guess. My guess is that you, that everybody who's listening today, you wouldn't be tuned in this long, at least if you're still if you're still listening with us online, you wouldn't be still here if you don't believe that that is what needs to happen in your life, right? I shouldn't love the world. I get that, but its pull is really strong, and we're tempted every single day to give our allegiance to things of the world. The world never stops making offers to us, and our flesh never stops taking looks at those offers, like being lured to them, being tempted by them. And John recognizes this, and so he gives us reasons then. So he doesn't just give us a command. He gives us reasons why we should not love the world. Um, and so let's look at this for the first reason in verse 16. Basically, the first reason is don't love the world because the world is opposed to the Father. He says it this way, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, there's the word the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. So there's three things there that are is not from the Father, but is from the world, right? The desires of the flesh, my own desires, the desires of my eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's of the world. These are the things that are of the world. So it's the mindset that says that, hey, this world is ultimate. And, 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 and where, did that, where does that mindset originate? Where does, where does the, the mindset that everything in the world is really what matters to me originate? It originates in the world. So when sin entered the world, we replaced God for God's creation. We see that in the beginning of Romans. Paul talks about that. People started, they, they, they forsook worshiping God and they began to worship the creation instead of the creator. We distorted and we twisted God's good gifts that he gave us to enjoy the things in this world. And instead what we did was we turned them into our ultimate hope. We turned them into our, our, our identity, how we identify with one another. The things of the world are not meant to be our ultimate hope. And when we put things in this world in, in place of our ultimate hope, that's when we lose heart. To help us understand how this goes, John gives us three categories of worldliness. And those three categories are, as I mentioned, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So notice this word now, desire. We, we looked at the word world. Let's look at the word desire because it's in here a lot. And this word matters so much in understanding this passage. All right? I remember I talked about last week how words really matter, and they do. And it's important to, to, understand, to look at the words of the Bible and understand what they mean. What we love is all about what we desire. Okay, So, so this des desire 
gives birth to, th- to, to love, to what we love. The Greek word that John uses here for desire is a word that it, it, uh, I think you pronounce it this way, epithumia, epithumia. I, I don't know how to pronounce Greek, but that's the word. And it means an intense desire for some particular thing, all right? So desire means it's defined by itself, an intense want for a particular thing. And it's not simply a preference, okay? So it's not like I prefer this over that. Like, like there are things that I prefer and then there are things that I desire, right? Like if you're giving me, if I'm driving through McClure's and I'm getting a milkshake, I prefer chocolate over vanilla, right? But I don't intensely desire chocolate. I, there would be a problem if I intensely desired it. I might intensely desire a Sunny Burger, but I, I, don't, I don't intensely desire that anything. But that's, that's so that what this word is talking about is intensely desiring something, okay? Desiring it above everything else. That's what it means. This word is actually used 38 times in the entire New Testament. And interestingly enough, it's a word that can have both a positive or a negative connotation. And on three of the 38 times that it's used in the New Testament, the connotation of this word desire is positive. I find that interesting. I wouldn't expect John in this particular passage to use this kind of word in a positive way here. And so, you know, and so so for that reason, some translations, depending on the translation of the Bible that you're reading, some translations might actually say lusts in this verse instead of desires, because that's more like what you would expect in this particular verse. Because it's hard to think of any good connotation of a word like lust, right? But the most literal translations of Scripture actually use the word desires, which is interesting since that word can go either way. Desire for something good or desire for something bad is what I mean. For example, so I looked up the three uses of the word desire in the New Testament that are used in a positive way. And I want to share those with you so you can get the idea of what I'm talking about here. The first one is from Luke chapter 22. Verse 15, Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, and, and, and he's getting ready to go to the cross, and he says to his disciples this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So in other words, Jesus deeply desired to sit down and dine with them before his suffering. Why? Why does he have this deep desire? Well, their presence reminded him, I think, of his mission, and it became to him the joy that was set before him and going to the cross, as Hebrews chapter 12 says that he had. A second instance where this is the word desire is used in a positive way is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. And this is the Apostle Paul, where he's talking about to live as Christ and to die as gain. And, and he's talking about being hard-pressed between the two things. And he actually says this, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul's deep desire here is to be with the Lord, and he knows that that, you know, to ultimately be with him, like for eternity. And that deep desire then propels him to just sort of submit to whatever circumstance he's in while he's here and now in the temporary world, and just to obey Jesus always, because he wants, he has a deep desire to be with him. So whatever the cost, he's going to obey here and now. And so that, that word desire is, a, is used in a positive sense there. And then the third instance of this word being used that way is in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 17. This is, again, a letter from Paul. And Paul says, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short period of time, 
in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And I wanted to share this one because I feel that, like it was so good to see you all face to face last week. And this is what Paul is writing. He's not able to see his people face to face. And there's this great desire. He's been separated from the Thessalonians and he longs to see them again. And I feel this deep desire to be with God's people again. So again, here is why I focus on words and their meaning. Because John is not using this word on accident. Words matter. And the fact that we are capable of such deep desires really means something. What does it mean? Pastor Jonathan Edwards said it like this in his argument from desire. He said, to create men with a capacity for great happiness, which God never intended to fill, would have been to have created a large capacity when there was not but of a smaller fulfillment for it. And he says, in doing so, it would make man less happy to be capable of more happiness than he shall ever obtain. Now tis evident then, Man is made with a nature capable of great happiness, for he has created him with a nature capable of enjoying God. We are created with a nature that is capable of enjoying God. Hence, we learn that there is undoubtedly a future state after death, because we see they do not enjoy so great a glory in this world. Jonathan Edwards is a lot older than us, and so sometimes hard to understand his quotes So a couple centuries later, a man came along named C.S. Lewis, and he wrote it like this. If I find in myself a desire for which, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most profitable explanation is that I was made for another world. If you understand what's being said in those statements what you would understand them to mean is that, it, that if we have the capacity for such strong desire, then it must be because God himself created it inside of us. And why did he create it? So that it would go unmet? Of course not. Did he create it so that it would be wasted on the passing things of this world? No way. He created this desire in you to fill it with himself. Why? Because he's the most satisfying reality in the universe. That's the only answer to that. That's the only reason why. And by creating us with desire, he gave us the capacity to really experience him and find the deepest happiness of our lives in him. And so to focus our desire on the world then, rather than the focus on the Father, is to focus on things that can never really truly satisfy. And we need to stop the dumpster diving for the treasures of this world and start digging deeper for the incomparable riches of Christ. It's in him 
only that we will find that our desires are fully and truly satisfied. And that is what John is writing when he says the desires of the flesh. He's talking about the wrong focus of that desire on the things that you can see, having a wrong focus, just, just focusing on the things that you can see and then desiring them, the things that you can touch and feel and anything that appeals to how you can feel, uh, to what you can feel on the here and in the now. And then he says the desires of the eyes. He's talking about things that, you know, attraction, what appeals to our sight. When you see something you just have to have, right? Something you wish you could have. It's that Instagram life, the Instagram model, right? Looking great on the outside, even on the inside, you're dying or setting up your house in such a way and then taking a picture of that or that meal at that table and how things all look perfect on the Facebook post, but you know how it really is in life. And then he says there's this thing called the pride of life the self-exaltation, something, you know, or thinking that, that what you have and what you are and what you have made is, is, you know, for yourself is of your own doing, your pride and your accomplishments, your own possessions, your own means, your own livelihood. Pride of life is sort of the result, I think, of the other two, the, the lust of the flesh, the pride, you know, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, which mean, you know, it, it, it becomes the means by which we keep the other two things alive, I guess. That's how the pride of life is. It's sort of the culmination of the sin of idolatry, idolatry that we talked about when we went through the, the Ten Commandments several weeks ago, this, this lust for accomplishment and then a love for the things that we've accomplished or things that we have accumulated or things that we have attained more than anything else, having a desire for those things. And the hard truth is, the more we focus our desires on the world, allowing the world's mindset to take root and, and to grow, the more we push God out to the edges of our heart because desires of the world crowd out love for God, whereas love for God will crowd out your desire for the world. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking right now, and that is this. You might be thinking, okay, I get it. I shouldn't desire the world. But how do I stop, right? How, do, how can I stop desiring? I mean, like you might be saying, I can't change what I want. I mean, have you ever tried that, right? Have you ever tried to change what you desire? It's almost impossible, isn't it? I mean, you just can't, you can't do it. If you, if, like if you desire pornography and you know that you shouldn't desire pornography, you can remove all the computers from your life. You can take all the TVs down. You can set up a, an account on Covenant Eyes and all that. But the desire, if the desire is still there, you'll find a way to find pornography. That's just the way it works. So how do you change your desires? If we're not supposed to desire certain things, if we're commanded to not desire certain things, and you can't change your desires, how, what, what are we to do then? Here's the answer. God will always create a way for the command that he gives us. God changes your desires. He created your heart. He's the one that can change the desires of your heart. So if, if, if giving you that information then doesn't help, like if that's not a good enough reason for you to go, okay, I, I, to not want to love the world, John actually goes a little further here, and we're going to look at verse 17, where he says, if we love the world, then we're going to pass away with the world because things of this world pass away. He says this, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So in the world, 
it's those who reach the top of the world who make the biggest splash, right? And, and that's, that's by design. It's exclusive. It's hard to reach. Not just anyone can make it in the world. No matter how high you climb, that ladder is always a little wobbly. And sometimes it's really easy for you to get knocked down, right? One bad, one bad mistake, one bad investment. If you're, if you're, in, you know, desiring riches, one bad mistake, one misstep, one, one miss, one wrong word that you might type or say, and it's all over, right? And when you die, as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, all is left to another. Every worldly desire turns into a dead end. That's it. But in the kingdom of God, whoever does the will of God abides forever. You don't have to reach the top of the world. You can actually be at the bottom. And the world actually hates the lowly and the humble. But God loves the lowly and the humble. Whoever comes to God with a heart longing for his grace is going to find it. So if you have a desire to, to change your desires, the only way that you're going to be able to change your desires is to come to God humbly with, and, and ask for his grace. And that's going to end up at the top. The bottom is the top in God's kingdom. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I, 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 you can be wealthy and be close to God. And you can also be poor and far from God. It's not about material wealth. It's about how you relate to material wealth, what you're building your identity on. If you build your life on the passing things of this world, then you will pass away along with it. You'll waste your life. But if you build your life on the will of God, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and you will have what will be something, you will have something that will live and abide forever. Jesus taught us this, didn't he? In John, in the Gospel of John, chapter six, when he fed the five thousand, remember that story. And after the loaves, after they ate uh, the loaves of bread, and he leaves, they come looking for him the next day. They're like, "Do it again," you know. Like, and Jesus responds to them. He says, "Look, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate and your stomachs were filled. Right? You had your fill of the loaves." And then he says, do not work for food that perishes, but work for food that gives eternal life, that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man, he calls himself, will give you. And then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the, wor the works of God, the good works of God? And Jesus answered them like this. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. So the crowds liked Jesus because their bellies were full because they had their fill of the loaves. But a full belly is only a pointer to the grace of God. It's not God himself. Their desire was for more than bread. It was deeper. Their desire was for God. They just didn't know it yet. They, they, they couldn't see it yet. What's the point I'm making here? Some of you have had a desire for a long time. It's deeper. You've tried to fill it with other things. You just don't, you haven't known exactly what that's been yet. When we make the world and the things in this world ultimate in our heart, we will grow hungry and thirsty no matter how much we try to eat. You will never quench that hunger. When we make the Father, on the other hand, ultimate in our heart, then he gives us Jesus who then said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
What is this will of God then that abides? What is this long-lasting, eternal will of God that abides for all eternity? Here's what it is. It's treasuring Jesus and believing in Jesus for all eternity, for eternal life, looking to him for everything, for all of your satisfaction, all of your worth, all of your joy, all of your peace, all of your hope. It's in him. So John isn't asking you to just evaluate this over a period of time and then make a plan for a change. That's not what he's, when he gives a command like he's giving today, this isn't something that he's saying, hey, think about this for a little while, okay? And that's not what I'm saying today. I'm not saying, hey, listen to this word from God and think about it and considering it for a little, chew on this for a while. You know what John's doing here when he gives us this instruction? He's calling for an immediate response, right? Jesus looked at those people. Why are you looking to Jesus? To give you more bread or to give you himself? What do you believe matters most? One way that you can know the answer to that question up to this point in your life is to look at all the tangible aspects of your life, right? Like how much of what you have, what you do, what you've accomplished, how much of all of that do you attribute to Jesus and how much of it do you attribute to yourself? How much energy do you spend on the things of God? If you are realizing, like right now, you might be realizing that, you know what, I've loved, I've loved the world far too much. And I really think that all of us, if we really paused and think about it, I think we could all say that about ourselves. Well, what's the path forward then? Well, I think it helps to go backwards to where we began, verse 15. And he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That phrase, the love of the Father, it occurs only here in the New Testament. That's, this is the only place where this phrase occurs. And that the love of the Father, that phrase, means love toward the Father generated by the Father's love toward us. You ever hear the verse in, that John also writes? We love because he first loved us. That's, that's the love of the Father. You see, John is not calling us to try to create a love for the Father on our own. We can't do that. You just can't do it. And many of you have realized that. You realize, I mean, many of you have been have like, you know, for years, I, I never loved God. I didn't care to. And maybe you tried, but it didn't stick. But, but now something different is happening. And God's creating that in you. He's doing that, right? It is the Father's love coming down to us through the person of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms us from world lovers into God lovers. What I mean by that is this. It is only when we truly know how much God loves us that we desire to love him in return. What did Jesus say in John 6? Don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which what? The Son of Man will give you. He gives us what we need. Everything in this world has a price, but in the gospel, in the, in the good news, that's what the gospel is. God says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, Come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk and bread. You know, and and you know, without any money, without a price, just come. That's that's the that's the point. That's the key. 
Just come to him. That's all, that's all you need to do. Will you do that? Will you come to him? And here's how you can do that. If you go back to 1 John 7, which is something that we studied a few weeks ago, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, does something, cleanses us from all sin. So the path forward is not bootstrapping it, it's confessing it. It's not trying harder, right? It's not pulling up your bootstraps and just try harder. That doesn't work. When the pull of the world gets really, really strong, what happens is the only way to get rid of that pull is to cut the chains of that, of that pull. And, 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 and you do that through honest and real and regular confession of your sin. When you confess your sins to Jesus, how does Jesus respond then? Does he punish us? Does he condemn us? No. What's he do? What's 1 John 1, 7 say? He cleanses us. When we bring our missteps to the world... Our mistakes, our, 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 our things that we should not have done, but we did. When you bring that to the world, what's the world do? Well, the world shames you. The world wants to cancel you. But when we bring our sins to Jesus, he saves you. Are you starting to see how important this is? How life-altering this is? Martin Luther said that we need to live from the perspective of eternity. What I mean by that is we need to, what he means by that, I should say, is that we need to live today in light of what we will experience 10 billion years from now. In 10 billion years, you're not going to care one lick about what you did or did not get to do in 2020. Just not. You're not going to care about any of this stuff. Any of the stuff that's going on right now in 10 billion years makes no matter. So why do we care so much now? Well, because it's in our immediate time frame. It's what we can see. It's what we can feel. It's what we can touch. And our fixation on it every day does what? It grows our desire for it. The temporary. The momentary. That's all this is. The world and all that it's in it passes away while the weight of glory. Remember last week, 2 Corinthians 4, the weight of glory is, is, is it's eternal. It's forever. Missing out on the best of what this world has to offer right now. It might feel like suffering here and now in the present, but God's word says that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the weight of glory, the glory that is to be revealed to us for all eternity. And so what do you love most? The world of the Father. What do you want? What do you desire most? You remember back in Acts, how it describes for us the activities of the early church in the book of Acts. We learn about the activities of the early church, right? We talk about this often. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and to prayer, right? They devoted themselves, right? They were living for Christ in the midst of the world, and what happened? After they were doing that stuff, all came upon every soul, right? Every person there. And it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so here's the question to ask yourself this morning. What am I doing? What am I part of? What am I involved in that will still matter 10 billion years from now? If you want what you believe about God to be aligned with 
how you live every day life, then Jesus is the one who sets the rules for that, not the world. Understand that. And in doing so, you become a different kind of person with different desires, a person who is centered on Jesus and rooted in joy, where things like confession of sin to him is, is common. Repentance is a way of life because we have nothing to hide anymore. And loving each other is just the natural outflow of our deep desire for the Lord. The world doesn't understand this because this kind of living is not of this world. It's of God. You're going to look strange to the world. But you know what? Some of the world will find that, that you actually, that it, the way you're living is actually kind of attractive. And the reason why that someone might look at that and see, hey, that's kind of attractive to me is because God is giving them a desire and they're seeing it. And that desire is much bigger than they can fill here. And they're starting to get hints of that. And they begin to realize that. And they want to know how to get that in their own lives, what you have found in your life. Listen, not, not loving the world means, it means this. We might not get our best life now. That's okay. Having our best life now is not God's plan. That's our plan. You know why it's not God's plan? Because for God to give us our best life now when we're here battling sin is basically to give us a living hell. And God loves us too much to do that. He wants more for us than, you can, than we can ask for ourselves or create for ourselves. When we would settle for everything that we desire in this world right now, God is saying, I won't have that. I won't let you settle for that. And you know what? That's grace because he wants so much more for you. I mean, we're all looking for a miracle to make our life complete. And that miracle that we're looking for has come. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God didn't leave us on our own, wandering through this life, hoping that we'll find what we need. He entered into this life. He entered it with us. We fell in love with what we could see and what we could touch. Romans tells us we, we looked at this world and all the things in it. And we said, wow, that's good enough. And God said, no, it's not good enough. And so he came to this world. He became seeable. He became touchable. He looked at us and he said, look, I don't care what you've made of yourself. I want to come to you. I want to come down. I want to save you. You've been blinded by, they've been, you know, they've been blinded by the evil one. They're, 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 they're looking at the world and they're thinking that's their deep, that that's going to crave, fulfill the crave of their deep desire, the things of their flesh. They can't do it. So I'll go to them. I'll go to them and I'll show them a better way. And even when Jesus was here, the world and its temptations tried to offer Jesus everything and he, he turned it down. Why did he turn it down? And the reason why is because he wasn't here for those temporary things. He was on a mission when he was here to save, to save you. For too long, we have wasted our lives, our God-given desire on things of this world, never finding what our heart truly craves and what our heart truly longs for. And so Jesus obeyed the Father on our behalf when we couldn't do it. And he triumphed over the world. And he made it possible for us to come to the one who could satisfy our heart. He gave himself for you. And my question for you is, what has the world given for you? All the things in this world that you live your life for, 
What's it given you? What's it given for you? What's it sacrificed for you? We're going to lose everything at the end of our life. But if we have Christ, then we'll have everything that we ever longed for, for all eternity. Well, our path out of desiring this world is to travel further in the love of God. To desire Him overall. Understand, Jesus is not asking us to sacrifice happiness and joy. In this command, he's actually saying, enter happiness and joy. Ultimately, enter it. This is where you're going to find it once and for all. The Bible promises us that whatever it may cost us in this life, it'll be a trade that we will not regret for all eternity. So make no mistake, as we obey this command, do not love the world. We're going to face problems in this world. But take to heart, Jesus has overcome the world. And because of that, you can have your desires changed to eternal desires. And the way that that's done is by surrendering everything to Him.